Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council, cultural considerations in a clinical setting, aka two white guys talk about race. (laughs) Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I am Reese Bissimeo. Today I am in the Zoom recording space and delighted to have with me for a great conversation my longtime friend and respected colleague, Aaron Kelsey. Aaron, thanks for being on the show. Do tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Aaron Kelsey. Uh, I am joining my friend Reese for a podcast. Uh, so he and I met back in college and then you know stayed connected uh, during my career in the nonprofit world. And now I'm a counselor, uh, sort of followed in his footsteps a little bit. So I'm actually doing uh, substance use treatment at an inpatient residential treatment center and uh, all the all the clients I work with now uh, and over the last over, over a year now uh, everybody's referred by probation and parole and uh, everybody's dealing with uh, mental health criminality and substance use all at once in this uh, treatment facility so yeah that's a yeah. quick overview of my background that's where you are you you get to see it all that must be <laughs> yeah. fun all sorts of fun <laughs> So. Yeah, it's, it is pretty fun. Yeah, and uh, fun and then, you know, flashes of chaos mixed in. So that, that keeps it interesting for sure. It does. And, you know, got to have a little bit of chaos. I mean, it's not like we don't have any chaos going on in the, in the world right now. So we got to conjure some <laughs> up at work. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we, we counselors are experts in managing chaos, I think. Yeah. yeah. Or, or not, we just pretend to be, I guess. There, there, there is a little bit of pretending that goes on, I think. Just, just a little bit. Yeah, um, which might be okay. I mean, we're human too, and sometimes it's good to see like another human struggling or see another. Uh, well, I mean, so a lot of counseling is modeling, so being able to see here's another human who's like struggling through something, but in kind of a healthy way, or at least not under the influence. Um, there, there could be some benefits there. Yeah, yeah. There's some being present in a in a healthy intentional way i yeah. think it is it's cool it's, it's cool to just be present mm-hmm. you know and you know there there have been a number of moments this week where uh and we were talking about this before we started recording of just and people are asking me like what's gonna happen and i'm in this role as a staff person here where i'm, I'm supposed to be able to tell them and i'm just i'm i'm sort of like hey guys i'm I'm uh, I'm in the same boat as you, and I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen, and that's it. <laughs> you know, I'm just I'm just a human being in this space with you. Yeah, and I think there can be something really powerful about that. Which, when this is a point I wanted to bring up later, when we get to what we actually want to get to, but like this idea of a, a presence being super important and sometimes one of the barriers to presence can actually be solutions in a sense where I I perceive you're in distress, uh, which is easy these days. A lot of people are in distress, but if I, there's a way that I don't want to get close to that distress. I want to throw up here some solutions or some wisdom Mm -hmm. or some ideas or some pithy saying or some new statistic from the CDC or something um, to, to keep, to keep a distance. Um, So uh, sometimes just allowing that, yeah, this all sucks really bad and this is hard and this is painful and I'm scared too. Um, there, there can be something really powerful about that. So, uh, yeah. We call it in, uh, well, I, I'm guessing every counselor is just, they call it just building distress tolerance. Yeah. Can you, can you sit with uncomfortable emotions and, and not resort to unhealthy behaviors? Um, or, 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 you know, can you replace some of those unhealthy behaviors with healthy behaviors? You know, can you exercise? 
can you uh, meditate? You know, these, these kind of things when, when uncomfortable emotions come up. And it's, it's really obvious in the addiction field how, how people manage those unhealthy uh, or how they, how they manage uncomfortable emotions. Um, now, you know, we're in this sort of slow moving permanent crisis, it seems like. And mm-hmm. so it's like, okay, everybody's trying to manage this discomfort at the same time. Um, so yeah. And, and then at the end of it, like you said, like, I, I think we all want solutions. Uh, we all want certainty and predictability and it's not, it's not on the menu right now. So then what do you do? Um, so you can get the, the easy answer, uh, like, Oh, everything will be okay. And that pretty, pretty quick doesn't work. Yeah. There's a fine line between like optimism and hope and just lying to people. Uh, so, which I mean, granted, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think yeah. that I mean the reality is that I think we will be okay in in this whole virus thing mm-hmm. too, but we don't know how and we don't know when and we don't know specifically right. that will be. And then now I'm thinking like, okay, so what's going to be like the long term impact of this too? Um, like as I'm like watching, you know, watching my kids start mm-hmm. to talk about it and gain an awareness of it and be like, mm-hmm. oh, this is why I can't have playdates anymore. It's this exactly darn virus out there. Um, uh, it's making me think back to like you know other other major historical things like you know like you know in our our younger generation you know we had nine eleven you know the generation mm-hmm. before that they had the Vietnam War you know before that there was you know the depression and Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. and like um, you know maybe every generation kind of has their um, their crucible that they go through but you know just right. like the the neurological impacts the epigenetic impacts the you know the trauma impacts boy, somebody's going to make a killer documentary off of this someday. So yeah, uh, that'll be good. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned a number of events that, that took place before social media was what, what, what it is now, you know? And so when you look back at like the depression, for instance, we have, we have a lot of literate people that were writing journals and there were, you know, mountains of newspaper articles and books and stuff written. So now we get uh, almost like a stream of consciousness, uh, you know, minute by minute account of literally millions of people reacting to this as it's happening. Uh, And that's pretty unique uh, to have like a single global phenomenon that everybody's reacting to at the same time. And it's sustained. Nobody's exempt from it. And we have this, you know, permanent digital account of it. Mm -hmm. That's that's, (laughs) pretty cool and you know scary too you know you look at what people are saying in january versus february versus today uh and then we sort of go like i wonder what somebody in 10 years is going to look back and you know go through twitter i guess and and read what people are saying like that's right that that is interesting and there is and i guess oh let's see if i can use this to segue into like our our actual topic this is fun too but there there is some there is something kind of cool about how this is all going on in that it is affecting everyone and like within my lifetime like within my memory of history i don't remember any time where like all over the world people are working on the same problem in the same way everybody's facing the same threat everybody's taking like degrees of the same measure and so there is something kind of kind of cool about that sense of unity in a sense um but i think maybe the one of the important things is to consider how there is this kind of veneer of unity um but it's not complete unity because not everybody's facing it on equal footing and yeah. you know here's where we could begin to you know talk about culture and diversity and mm-hmm. you know people of different genders, different races, different classes, different uh, education levels, um, d- you know, in regional differences. And in, in this case in particular, like, like age differences too. Um, not everybody, at the same time as we're all dealing with this, definitely not everyone is experiencing it the same way. And, and yeah. I would dare say like, there's some people who are extremely vulnerable and you know, uh, probably people like you and me, I mean, we're two cisgendered white guys, we're probably gonna be fine. Um, yeah. but I mean, no guarantees, Lord have mercy, but you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I, um, so saying yes. And like, so there's the coronavirus piece and then for you and I, in our just counseling, you know, therapy mental health, substance use context, 
we we see just the different dimensions of culture and race. Uh, you mentioned age, and uh, I you know I, I like to throw in class. Uh, I think class is a is a it's not a it's not a panacea. You know, we if we find a solution for the class issues, that doesn't mean that we solve racism. Uh, uh, the way that people are affected by addiction, for example, is colored by all those different things. So if you're a 60-year-old addict, it's, it's very different than a 17-year-old addict. Uh, and it's, it's the same, uh, and probably to an extreme, with, with the coronavirus. You know, so if you're, uh, if you're in a substance use inpatient treatment facility, uh, the reason that you're there is because you're you're lacking in resources to to manage your addiction, and uh, so for a lot of the a lot of the clients that I work with, you know they they don't have they don't have the option to just uh, go somewhere else. Uh, like so even if even if they're if even if their parole officer said you you can go, um, a lot of the men I work with they would they would just be sleeping outside, and. Um, that would put them in a even more even more at risk for for catching coronavirus and put them even further away from being able to access you know resources and supports for you know supporting their health you know physical health and otherwise. Um, so yeah, I mean, should, yeah, should we slow down and just kind of break down like what are the barriers to to even coming and seeing somebody in our profession? There's a there's there's a lot of them. Um, under 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 the best of times you know best of times you know money's always a barrier for sure money and health coverage and uh geography can definitely be although which we're just which we've discovered in the last two weeks you know the the internet is everywhere so geography doesn't have to be a barrier um except though so so i do have um this has come up a little bit uh so i'm i'm licensed and i practice in in oregon and i have a couple clients in washington and that's come up like, well, uh, I, I'm not able to do teletherapy with them because mm-hmm. I'm not licensed there and they can't get across state lines. And you know, I don't know if we're, we're going to go to where state borders close, but you know, if that happens, you know, not even teletherapy will work. So right. that's, that's problematic. But beyond some, some of those, some of those um, logistical ones, there, there's some of the, the, the interpersonal barriers too, like, um, Finding a therapist of um, of your preferred preferred racial profile, um, you know, someone that who is your race or who's not your race, um, that can be that can be that can be tricky. You know, finding someone who is your gender preference or your and, and you know, especially like in a, in a non-binary sense, like someone who kind of presents kind of close to you, the, the same spot as you on the gender spectrum, um, who who speaks gender speak and and knows all of things um, that that's tricky too. And finding someone who you can afford. Did we mention money already? Money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so if you're listening to this and you're a therapist, you know, you know, the cost of therapy because you, you know, you deal with that every day. I mean, so if you have insurance, your, your insurance hopefully covers all or most of, of the expense. Right. And so if not, uh, it, it's what is $200 an hour is is the going rate for a licensed therapist and outpatient some something in that ballpark Ooh, i should raise my rates <laughs> you should raise your rates uh you know a lot like i i pay mine like a hundred dollars an hour and she's uh-huh. sort of been gracious with me like here's my normal rate here's what i'll charge you and i'm like that that seems fair yeah so seeing a weekly counselor you're talking about four hundred dollars a month uh maybe maybe a little more maybe a little less and if you have insurance, you know your your insurance is hopefully hopefully covering that four or five thousand dollars a year that that you're paying for mental health therapy. It's a huge cost, and and that's you mentioned the logistics of it. You know, can you can you drive? Um, so in our in our agency right now, we're looking at can we can we do some of this telehealth stuff? And for for a number of our clients, uh, the answer is no, because they don't have access to a computer they could theoretically do it on their phone um, and some of them can't afford cell service mm-hmm. so they're just working off of Wi-Fi and if they right. don't have enough Wi-Fi where they live anyway uh-huh. so there's there's just yeah. there's all these barriers that for me as a you know middle-class person like I, I go home and I just assume my internet's 
going to be working and it's always going to be there. My, my internet trauma like doesn't assume that because like I felt like the internet quit on me a whole bunch of times. But, um, but, 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 but I do have this like, you know, presumption, like I, I feel this entitlement. My internet should be working. Yeah, uh, it should. Right. Because yeah. yeah. how dare you not work? It's a human right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's a utility for me because I can yeah. afford it. Yeah. You know, and yeah, so sort of circling back to the cultural piece, I think uh, there's like, like there's a compounding of those of those barriers mm -hmm. that comes up with the invisible things. Mm -hmm. So in in my experience, when you talk about money, it's it's quantifiable. So like like if somebody tells me that they don't have money, then like we can do the math and I can go, oh yeah you're right, you don't have the money. And when it comes to sort of the, what I, not that there, you, you can see race, obviously, you can see the color of someone's skin and you can see uh, how people present, uh, you can hear their voice, you can hear the language they speak. Uh, and for, for dominant culture people like myself, uh, a lot of those things are, are invisible. Uh, they're, they're hard to articulate especially if you're, you're a vulnerable person uh, and if you're dealing with you know, resource issues, logistical issues, and then on top of that, you have to articulate and, and may, maybe you've been trained to articulate it, maybe not. Uh, uh, and so what, what comes out is I don't want, I don't want counseling. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable. Like I don't, I don't trust you. Uh, and so in, you know, in my agency, we, like all, all the clients I deal with are, are very, very different from me. And so the, the work that I have to do on the front end is just sort of naming that uh, and articulating it as, as best I can of like, here's, here's what this looks like from, from where I sit. Uh, I've, I've noticed that I'm very different from you. And I've noticed that the way, like the things that have happened to me in my life are, are different. And the way that I think is different. And the way that I relate is different. Uh, and and so sort of setting up that conversation for the client and, and making it like safe. Safe isn't the right word, but just helping them like connect with that idea, making the thing that's invisible in the room visible. Like we are very different. So then, so then what do we do? So that barrier becomes uh, quantifiable. So sort of back to like the idea of money, right? Like this is a $200 session and they're like, I don't have $200. I have $10. Like, okay, cool. Uh, we can work with that. Uh, so if I'm like, I'm a white guy and I'm sitting with somebody that's, you know, gang affiliated, you know, person of color, uh, much younger than me, you know, in the criminal justice system. And I, and I can name those things uh, that, that brings those things into the room, uh, makes those things visible, if that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. Yeah, um, just kind of centering where we are. Um, so, so we, when we talked about doing, doing this conversation, um, you know, we, we wanted to talk about like cultural considerations, how to consider cultural considerations, diversity, like specifically in a clinical context. Um, I know for me, one of the inciting moments to, to bring this up was, I mean, I recently got to do a, a guest lecture in a class and, you know, typically it's, it's a, you know, university, mostly white students. And, you know, one of the one of the students of color, you know, it's like lecture on, on addictions. And he asks, you know, very wisely and a good, is a good question. You know, how do you, how do you consider cultural factors when, when treating addictions? Um, and, and it was a good question. And I delightfully, I think I had something kind of, kind of good to say, but, but it did get me thinking and be like, it got me thinking about what should I do to consider culture in general. But, but I was also thinking about how very much, you know, it reminded me a lot about my, you know, my, my privilege status, where in my kind of like insular, like kind of mostly white world, there's a lot of things that I, that I don't have to think about as much. And in um, part of what I reflected in the moment, too, is, I mean, in my in my counseling context and private practice, you know, I'm I'm white passing. So I think most of the people who self-select to find me are, are also white. I have a couple Latinx people, a couple of native native clients, um, a couple Asian clients, but, but it's you know, generally people who look kind of like me. So there's just a lot of things that I haven't had to think about. But I think it is really important to think about because when we talk about like cultural, cultural factors, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ways that it works out. Um, and Aaron, you interact with, with class and with race a lot. 
uh, for me, I interact with, with gender, with sexual orientation, um, mm -hmm. and with, you know, diversity of faith, um, a lot, right. you know, and those all present, um, some different things to consider. And there's like a little bit of a different language that, that you learn, uh, with each one. You're, you're starting to talk and I'd love to hear some more. So we, I mean, we've kind of pinpointed, here's what some of the particular cultural factors can be. What do you suppose, um, what do you suppose goes wrong? Well, Let's be careful. Not to <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I have a, I have a thought. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that I assume as a, as a white person is, is just sort of individuation from, from my family. Mm. And so, so the way that plays out in addiction is you, so just as a general rule of thumb, if you're, if you're going to be with, uh, if you're going to be with people who are using drugs, you're probably going to use drugs. And if you're going to be with, if you're going to be with rich people, you're you're probably going to end up rich. And if you're going to be with people that play tennis, you're probably going to eventually try tennis. You know, so there's a sort of truism uh, that that I assume, and and this sort of a truism I think in and how people relate is you're going to be like the people that you're with. And so the wisdom that comes through, um, and I'm I'm calling it wisdom in, in sort of a loose sense. I'm I'm not saying that it's even true uh so we addiction counselors tell people don't be around people that use drugs and that makes sense if you're white so if you're white you can just say well if my family uses drugs i just won't be with my family anymore uh that's very white normative uh like for me growing up if i if i was to hear from my dad you know hey, my if my dad came home and was like we're changing religions you know, we're going to be Muslim or something. I would be like, shut up, dad. Because <laughs> I could tell my dad to shut up and I can do whatever I wanted and I could do whatever I wanted pretty much at a certain age. And for, for other more collectivist cultures, uh, if, if dad comes home and says, here's what we're doing, uh, it's, it's, it's not really this A or B option. You just have the option to, to be with your family. And what we've noticed uh, in my agency as we're trying to improve, you know, in our you know, inclusivity and equity conversations is uh, how do we help our clients of color and how do we help our clients who are from more collectivist cultures be with and be around their family uh, and understanding that sometimes addiction affects the whole family system, meaning you're, you're going to go home and you're going to be, you know, you're going to go home on Thanksgiving. Uh, and somebody might be using drugs or there, there might be alcohol there. Yeah. And so as a white person, you're going to say, well, just, just don't go home on Thanksgiving. And if you're from a collectivist culture, that's, that's, that's not an option. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's outside yeah. of the realm of possibility. For sure. Um, another one related to addictions that comes up as we're like kind of examining what are some assumptions we go into about this. Um, going back to class, it's this, or, Sort of, sort of class, sort of income is this idea that you can you can afford therapy, or right. or and 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 not just like the the individual outpatient, but again with with addictions in particular, there, there's a, you know we'll use the the ASAM dimensions of wellness to kind of assess what level of care should this person receive, you know, inpatient, intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, you know, rehab and everything, and there there can there's this attitude among you know providers that just kind of assumes that, oh yeah, if I assess that you need, you know, inpatient, you know, you're going to go to inpatient. Right. Um, or, and if I, if I assess that what you need is, you know, this really specialized program in Arkansas that you're just going to go to Arkansas for three months. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's not always quite that crass, but like, uh, but, but there's, there's this attitude that like, oh yeah, me, the, me, the expert provider who has the assessment tools is going to be able to dictate what you will do with this money that you may not actually have. And we'll just hope that this treatment intervention works. So um, yeah. that's a problem. Yeah. Well, I, I would say too, um, my understanding of the history of AA is that it was started by two rich-ish white guys. And, and it thrived in, in sort of that economic context, uh, that economic, cultural, social context of these two men. Uh, I think, what, what's his name? Bill Walton or something. Uh, Bill Wilson, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, he was a lawyer, wasn't he? And, I uh, don't recall specifically, but probably. Okay. Yeah, so they, I mean, they were both like 
you know, white, white collar jobs. And uh, so there's, there's a lot about, you know, the AA DNA, um, you know, the 12 step DNA uh, that's, it's the, the culture is, is white. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, lot, a lot of it is really paternalistic. A lot of it is, mm-hmm. I'm the expert, you should listen to me. You're the addict, you should shut up and, mm-hmm. and do what I say. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> which since, since we've opened the Pandora's box of the 12 steps, um, so prefacing with there, there's a lot that I really do respect and appreciate about um, what 12 step culture does. Like mm-hmm. not always specifically the 12 steps themselves, but something like they're, they're a really accessible community when a lot of people struggle to have community. So, so there's that, but there is this dynamic you're pointing out of um, its origins, you know, it originated in, you know, middle to upper class, you know, white America. And one of, one of the introductory tenets is, you know, embracing your own powerlessness as, as key for, for addictions recovery. So for uh, a cisgender straight white guy with a lot of money to contemplate powerlessness and embrace that I think it'd actually be really good because it's probably a really good healthy challenge to their internalized narrative and can mm-hmm. you know bring about a really healthy experience of humility uh, mm-hmm. and so in that in, in that context it's probably really good and really helpful but then considering other things like gender you know is it mm-hmm. always good for a woman of any class or race to be embracing you know a powerlessness narrative exactly Maybe, exactly. yeah, pending, but like yeah. individually. It's worth know, asking, but, isn't it? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's what we're saying is like we, we can question the, the sort of the ingrained cultural narrative. We're, we're, we're questioning is this, is this always true? Is this never true? Is this sometimes true? Mm-hmm. And I think if we're talking about like cisgender white lawyers in the 19 whatevers, it's like, yeah, 12-step made a lot of sense. Yeah. And there are contexts and there are people that engage with 12 step and they, they are helped by it. Right. And like you're saying, there's people, you know, because of all the different intersections of their, uh, who they are, their identity, it's, it, it might make it worse. Right. Yeah. I'm imagining like, like a, like a, like a queer person of color who may be coming off the streets, you know, coming into a 12 step context. <laughs> yeah. It's like you know. you're powerless. Right. 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 So, yeah. um, like either there needs to be a different narrative or that narrative needs a lot of good, like qualifiers to like, yes. you know, really, really make it, make it a helpful thing. And which I mean, right. could possibly be done, but it would just require a conversation and require really getting to know the person and yeah. adjusting your own expectations and paradigms for, for the, for the actual person in front of you. What, what else would you say for, for clinicians who are wanting to, and I would say all clinicians should be considering culture, uh, the cultures around them, you know, because there's, there's always some sort of diversity variable going on of some sort. What are some ways to do this well? And I guess um, I'm processing out loud a little bit. So, uh, so again, I'm reminding we, I mean, we like our solutions and I think we'd like, you know, like a three point below list, be like, you know, do these three things. And yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah, really yeah, confident. Yeah. But I know one of the, one of the ideas that floated you know, before is this idea, well, is it really a skill set or is it more of a mindset? Um, right. Are we after like cultural competency or, or cultural humility? And, um, right. you know, what does it take? I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, when we when we talked before this, I think it's like without humility, you're 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 not going to be able to add skills. Um, you're not going to be able to sort of, in a healthy way, second guess your assumptions or or question your assumptions. So I think humility is is the is the magic elixir, uh, and the, and the way I put it is it's a it's a down payment on the other stuff. Uh, so humility is is a requirement for just being a growing and learning uh, healthy human being uh, and and so as a clinician who's engaging with other cultures I think it it requires uh, just a constant intent intent towards humility like be just be humble uh, and be uh, be willing to to learn from your clients. Uh, so I, you know, if, if you go in assuming you have solutions, that's, that's probably not coming from a, of a place of humility, but what I would say is, uh, you know, so, so in humility, the, the skill is, 
it, so the alternate, <laughs> let me put it this way. I'm, I'm trying to process out loud too. Uh, so at the other end of the spectrum from humility is, is jargon, I think. Uh, yeah. And I think jargon, jar, jargon is in, uh, so you, you, you hear it a lot in the, in the substance use community. Uh, and I think you hear it a lot in counseling too, is, uh, you know, just, just one day at a time. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of a jargony thing that people say, uh, or, you know, just let go and let God, uh, this kind of thing. And so the, there are a lot of phrases that, that come up in, in counseling that, that we just sort of use until, until they're overused. And, and they can be a thing that we use to shut down some of these good, healthy conversations. And so when, when, I'm, a, when I'm me, so I'm a white clinician in, in a conversation with you know, a client of color, a client who's very different from me, uh, if, if, I, uh, if I think that I've learned the, this client, like if I think I've got it figured out, then, then what I say can come across as, as jargon. And, and so the, the trick is I could sit with a, a client of color and I could have this very human moment where I'm, I'm learning and I'm like, what, what does it look like for you and I to figure this out? Like, what does it look like for you to set some goals and, and be healthy in, in your own context? And, and that client could, could give me some ideas. And then I go to the next client who kind of reminds me of that client. And, and then I just shoot those same thoughts and words and ideas to that same client. And then I go to the third client and I say the same words and, and it becomes almost like a, like a ritual. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and, and so the second client, the third client, the fourth client that I come across, uh, they, they might get missed if I'm just shooting this, this jargony stuff. And I think, uh, and that, that's the, that's the danger of putting, uh, cultural competency into a set of skills. So that set of skills was probably developed and birthed in a context that made sense. And then here we are, you know, a year later, or or what feels like years and years of history later, and that stuff doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, And so all this to say, like I, there's, there has to be just a constant learning process. And I think that that takes humility. Um, It takes humility. I think it also takes energy too, as I'm thinking about, yeah. Uh, re revising my paradigm every year, six months, every yeah. you know, every client. Um, yeah, because yeah. because you would have to because you have to approach each client in a in a different way, and um, and that's 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 mental effort. It's good yeah. mental effort for sure, but you know it, it gets tiring, and it can see where. Well, I know reflecting on my personal life and like where I have conflict with, with people, it's like it's some sometimes it's because like I want things to just be a certain way. Or right. I want the reliability, consistency of, hey, you said it was this. Why isn't it this anymore? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, which, you know, it's just a very black and white sort of thinking. And the, the nice thing about black and white things is they are very consistent, reliable, and like you know <laughs> right. what you're getting, which is probably why Starbucks works. Um, but um, well, I guess that's green and white. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's, not all, that's also like not the true human experience because, you know, humans are growing and evolving. And even if they're in a period of stagnation, the world around them is changing. So, yeah, yeah there's a lot of things to do. Um, yeah, I, just as a, as a practical example, I mean, I, um, this is a, as a practical example, some of the training I've had in the, the nonprofit world is, uh, you know, in a previous career, we, we talked a lot about cultural competence and, and it was very much like, where, where are you located on these different, spectrums of you know power differential you know are you high power differential low power differential uh how do you you know how do you relate to people in authority are you more collectivist or more individualist how do you uh you know how do you you know there there were like five different factors or dimensions of culture and then once you learn that system or structure then you are culturally competent and uh that's uh that that's that's progress right like I went from having no idea about that stuff to knowing knowing some of that stuff and then what what I found out was you know there 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 are people of color that uh that that are dual or triple culture you know they they've acclimated to the dominant culture and so they when they sit down with me they speak that language 
And then when they're with their peers, they speak a different language. And then when they sit down with their family, they speak another language. Is that what they call code switching? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, code switching. And so, um, so what, what I found out was, you know, over time, I was like, oh, okay, so you're, you're talking to me in a way that, that accommodates me. Uh, and, and so as I'm counseling you, you're, you're, you're switching up your language in a way that, that fits me. Definitely a feature of being in the in the submissive position, and yes. you know, I'm thinking, and it's reminding me a little bit of like kids of like anxious attached or enmeshed parents who, yeah. um, like they have to they develop a lot of anxiety, hypervigilance in childhood because like their their experience as an individual is not sufficiently cherished to where they can just relax and be themselves. So yeah. they always have to be on the, on the guard for okay, which parents am I around? Are they under the influence or not? You know, right. what mode do I have to be in today? What safety measures do I have to employ today? Mm-hmm. And it's very much a position, comes from a position of vulnerability and maybe even trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, granted, there, there is a healthy version of like, I consider the environment around me and I consider, you know, there, there's, there's a healthy version of it, but, but that's not really what we're talking about. It's more the like, okay, I need to interact with these authority figures. What do I need to tell them? You know, how, do, how much do I need to compromise myself, my, who I Feel I truly am in order to either not get hurt or, or get what I need. Right. Right. And I, I think what, what I have as a dominant culture clinician is, is I would notice, um, I would just notice that dynamic first and then, you know, be able to, when it's appropriate and, and healthy, just bring it into the room. Uh, it's like you were saying, like clients, clients do that in order to get their needs met and in order to stay safe and uh you know depending on if they're in the prison system or you're just talking about like growing up in a home you know affected by addiction uh or all the different contexts that we could name uh you know it's a it's a survival mechanism and so it's not to say like clients shouldn't do that uh it's it's really about just like well who who am i in that in that dynamic uh how how am i contributing to that and, and am I, am I being a person where clients can be, you know, more, more their authentic self? Uh, and again, that takes, that takes energy. That takes, that takes humility. Uh, yeah. And that takes time too. Like, I mean, I have a, I have a couple of clients who have been working with for, you know, a year plus and, and, and now we're really starting to be able to talk to each other in a sense where, I've, I've sat with them long enough to where they, they've, they figured out, Oh yeah, Reese, he's not going to judge me. He's not going to jump down my throat. He's going to listen to me. He trusts me or something like that. Um, and you know, you know, cause it's, I mean, like any other relationship, I mean, you don't, or maybe you shouldn't open up to somebody completely right away and just assume like the best about them. Yeah. I mean, you can give them the benefit of the doubt, but you need to test it out and prove it. And that takes time. Um, which is a little harder to do in a professional relationship that costs money because like we talked about money is a finite resource, but <laughs> yeah, but that's how relationships go. So there, <laughs> so yeah. um, I, I would add another dimension of, of the humility piece for, for a clinician and just, just in general as a, you know, dominant culture person is the, there, there are, I would say there are a few clinicians who have ill will in, in what they do. And, and then still there's, there are sometimes negative effects in, in what we do. And so being able to, to examine both, you know, so examine, examine our intent. Uh, and you know, we, we call it counter-transference, right? Like, mm-hmm. like there are times when, when we just don't like clients. Uh, and so we have to be able to, in a healthy way, go, okay, what is, what is this client inspiring in me? You know, what what is why am I reacting to the client this way? So so looking at our at our intent and then also considering the effect of what we do. So uh, so talking about just the the massive power differential that uh, dealing with clients who are in the criminal justice system or clients with severe persistent mental health issues, you know all these all these different things. Uh, there's there can be a it, there, we can empower our clients. Or we can, or we can even more take their power away, uh, and and sometimes we can take their power away by by trying to help, uh, you know. So with with good intent, 
uh, and you see this in other contexts too. You see it in the ministry context. You see it in the, you know higher academics. You see it in politics. Sometimes people that that are trying to help they end up hurting people, uh, and so as a dominant culture clinician, we we have to consider like okay, uh, I do want to help. Of, of course, I want to help. And is my way of helping actually helpful? You want to help the other person. You don't want to colonize them. Yes. Which yes. is an intentional reference to colonialism and all of that. And that's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, let's talk about colonialism. Uh, yeah. yeah, next time. Because uh, okay, there's too much time. to say. Well, I, I love that you, you brought this up um, of making space for, for, for their experience. And and just recognizing that they ha- they have a story, they have a situation, and sometimes it's big and scary and intimidating. And I think the the very close companion of humility and cultural cultural competence, cultural humility, is this idea of, of resilience. And um, and it's 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 also related to to this idea of being being non judgmental. But I think what what makes because because kind of the, the idea is we, we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to you know, judge anyone for, 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 for their life. But I think part of what makes that possible is this idea of an internal resilience. The reality is when I encounter somebody who's very different than me, I am filled you know, down to my body level with a sense of, wow, I don't understand you. And something about that makes me nervous because you're different. And part of this uh, cultural awareness is recognizing, oh, I have a feeling of discomfort right now. Okay. Am I in crisis because of that? Or can I, you know, to use the somatic experiencing terms, can I have a gentle curiosity about that, that actual body sense in me? Um, mm. You know, sometimes people, their, their emotions in the moment are really huge and that's intimidating, overwhelming. And I mean, goodness, I mean, my own emotions when they get big and huge are, you know, intimidating and overwhelming. Um, you know, or like we talked about, I mean, we're talking about, you know, we, 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 we want to jump in and help. Um, you know, we, I mean, we all sit with people who they're just in so much deep sludge that there doesn't seem to be any feasible way out, but it's our job to find a way out, air quotes, or, or find hope. And sometimes it just isn't really forthcoming. And, you know, and again, that brings up an emotional response that brings up a really deep visceral body reaction that's really uncomfortable um and the other one i'm thinking about too is um related to like morals and values and worldviews and beliefs like there's you know i'd like to think i'm pretty open-minded and you know in my context you know pretty pretty sex positive and things but you know there's still some things that people say they're doing i want to doing that that make me raise my inner eyebrow a little bit i was like are you sure about that um But, you know, that, that the resilience is being able to recognize, okay, I'm having a wonder, I'm having a concern, I'm having a little bit of a twisting in my gut. Is that crisis? Do I have to be defensive over that? Or can I trust myself to handle like the onslaught of their difference and, and still, still be present with them? And I think what, what I've observed is that consistently letting my, feeling, letting my feelings about their feelings just be there and letting letting their feelings take preeminence and priority um, that tends to create a sense of security and to where they, they do tend to open up more and you know wouldn't you know it you know some months into the relationship you know we build a little bit of trust you know i do have a little bit more liberty to kind of nudge at their nudge at their ideas a little bit more uh so mm-hmm. so that that that's my thought about resilience yeah i would i would add just by way of expanding on resilience in, in my context. I mean, there's, there's an unspoken and, and sometimes spoken question. Do you think you're better than me? And uh, there's, uh, there, there's a long list. Uh, there, there's sort of the checklist, right, of uh, owning a house versus, you know, the other end of the spectrum is you, you sleep outside. Uh, there's, there's the education checklist. So if you have a master's degree, you are on paper better than somebody with a bachelor's degree or a high school diploma or no education at all. And uh, if you're free to go home at the end of the day versus somebody that, you know, you're, you're mandated to stay in a facility, you know, or you, uh, or you just, you, you can't leave your home comfortably because of mental health issues or whatnot. Uh, there's anyway, there's, there's this power differential just manifest across all that we do. 
and then there's times when it's it's very explicit uh the the betterness uh i'm better than you mm -hmm. and and so in the in the room when you're with your client uh it's the to me the judgment judgment means uh i think i'm better than you uh, judgment means like morally I'm better than you because of the choices you make in your sex life or with your money or with your career opportunities or with your time or all these different things. I, I manage my mental health better than you. That's why I'm a counselor. That's sort of the, the implication of why uh, it's sort of the, the, the assumption, right? And uh, what, what can be really helpful <laughs> sometimes, not always, what can be really helpful is, is naming uh, I don't, I don't have my shit together either. And, uh, I don't always manage my mental health. Well, uh, you're seeing me uh, as your counselor. I'm in counseling too. And, you know, so, so appropriate self disclosure, obviously that's, that's a, up to every clinician to figure out, but, uh, I've noticed mental health, residential, outpatient, all these different contexts. Uh, there's, there, there's that, uh, uh, do you do you think you're better than me? Question that's in the room, uh, that that nobody's consciously thinking mm -hmm. most of the time. Yeah, uh, but but it's it's there. Yeah, and I'm thinking about I'm thinking about what that question represents. Um, it can definitely be verbalized as a challenge, and definitely yes. be experienced that way. Um, but all the bluster aside, you know, stepping into like an attachment perspective. I would venture to say that when when somebody's you know throwing that out there like you know what you think you're better than me you know it's 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 kind of a test or it's kind of a a yearning for like I, I want to connect with you yes I'm Absolutely. scared to connect with you um can I can I trust you can I trust you to handle my anger can I trust you to handle mm. like the rawness of me mm. and, are you gonna reject me if I'm if I'm messed up yeah yeah. Um, you know, kind of this, you know, can, can you handle me? I really desperately hope that you can handle me because like deep down, I, I want connection. I don't know that, I don't know for sure that it's with you, but I want connection with someone. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And, and there's, there's probably a way too that, you know, having a good cultural awareness just being, means being able to like, you know, not take ourselves so seriously in a sense or right. not take what we might air quotes perceive as an insult, uh, really personally. Mm -hmm. because it might not be um i mean the people we work with have been they've they've been through a lot of other things um they've incurred a lot of other wounds from other people that's hopefully not at our own but they're they're probably still responding to those other things too absolutely yeah i'm thinking that um as we're talking about power differentials uh you know it's calling to mind the the whole idea of uh, of privilege and uh, you know we could list off the list you know you know white privilege male privilege cisgender privilege straight privilege you know class and education privilege in regarding corona like young healthy person privilege which thankfully right. <laughs> we seem to have um, yeah. and that's such a huge presence to be navigated and a really important thing to be aware of. Um, and I don't think, I mean, tell me what you think about this. I don't think it should be cause for, for people who have the privileges to like feel guilty or ashamed about it or, you know, internalize some sense of like something's wrong with me because I have all of these privileges. Um, but a bit, if you like, we do, we do need to remember that, you know, in, I'll, to use a, a zoo metaphor, like in a, in a, in a room full of like all sorts of different animals, we tend to be the elephants or, uh, right. or the right. rhinoceroses, you know, memory eternal. Right. Um, and it's not bad to be a rhinoceros. It just, we have to be a lot more careful. We maybe have to move less, say less, uh, definitely assume less and, you know, watch and wait more and, you know, maybe let other people like direct us a little bit more because we have a lot of influence. Um, you know, we, we probably need more voices around us, coaching us and guiding us on just where to direct that influence. Um, and that would be, that would be fair to say. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, I totally agree. I think well said. Uh, I think an ex example of, of what you're, you're talking about in, in our context, you know, especially in community mental health where, you know, we're dealing with clients that a lot of times just they have trouble accessing resources, you know, picking up the phone and just calling the right person and then figuring out the words to say and whatnot. Um, you know, we, we are definitely the, the elephant in the room. You know, we, 
we can we can pick up the phone and make things happen and uh that that can be uh <laughs> i know you said let's not get into colonialism but that can be very very paternalistic and it can be very you know it, it we can flex make our power felt in the community and and sort of get stuff done on behalf of our clients and that feels good for us uh, i know it feels good when i when i can get housing for a client or i can you know mediate a, an issue for a client and uh, at the end of the day the client doesn't add any any of their own power uh and and so you know the question becomes like how how do we uh come alongside or how do we follow behind clients who who struggle to navigate systems and you know get get them to a place where they can do it on their own if that's even a possibility uh how do we how do we challenge systems uh in our in our context in a in a healthy way in an appropriate way and then you know just the other the other question i would ask is how do we uh how do we become more aware? You know, you mentioned having having voices in our in our lives, um, and I, I I think I think you said it well. Uh, and I'm just sort of restating what you said, but allowing other people to have influence over us, because uh, I think if you picture an elephant, you know, it's it's hard to move an elephant that doesn't want to be moved, and and I think you know as dominant culture, white men like like if somebody tells me what to do and I don't want to, I I kind of don't have to. Uh, you know, and, and if I, if I am sort of compelled or forced, I can just go somewhere else. I can find a different job. I can find a whole different community and just, you know, go, go where I want to go. Uh, and, and people that aren't from the dominant culture, you know, don't have that privilege. They're, they're sort of stuck, uh, and, or, or the, not stuck necessarily, but they have less options. And so I think the awareness piece and then being able to, uh, allow your your power and influence be to to be used for somebody else's agenda. I think that was uh, sort of an eye-opening thing for me over time. Is is in the especially in the nonprofit world, like the people with the people with resources, like the people with wealth. Basically, nothing will happen without their say so. If there's a project by and for people without resources or wealth, uh, they have to get the consent. Of, of people with the resources and the way that plays out in our context is clients have little or no voice in the structure of you know the, the community mental health system clients have very little say so in how or what HIPAA or or you know private insurance nobody's asking clients uh, you know we we as clinicians have some voice in that we have very little voice relative to you know, politicians and, you know, the, the financial industry, the private insurance industry, uh, we have a tiny bit of influence. Clients have basically no influence on that. Uh, and that's, and that's a problem. Unless you have really rich clients, which, you know, could happen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so then, yeah. So then the, the system is, is shaped according at the end of the day, the system is shaped according to what rich people want. Uh, yeah. and, and most of those people happen to be white. Because uh, you know, as we know, our our system is is capitalism, and, and capitalism is has been racialized. Uh, it's it's white capitalism, and so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So if you're if you're a client of color, uh, and you're if you're a client that also has uh, not not much access to resources, you're you're basically powerless. Yeah. And that you as a clinician, uh, and I'm I'm saying this about myself, obviously, you're sort of the uh, the low man on the totem pole of this of this power system uh, so you have way more power than than the clients do uh but relative to the larger system you have basically no power so that's a problem well on that encouraging note <laughs> <laughs> so um it, you know uh, again i mean the, the, these these things are difficult and there there's some there's some ugly things but i know i mean you know no no government has ever been good no government has ever been perfect um and you know, you know, everywhere in in all places throughout all of time, there's been you know corruption and oppression and you know the, these inequalities. And somehow people still find ways to to thrive, to have good connections, to 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 live peaceably with each other. Um, you know, it, it's maybe more work for some people in some cases, but you know, there's it's not quite also grim. And granted, that's that's again that, that's me, a white person talking. So my my apologies. But <laughs> but but with this though, so. For for the people who haven't turned us off by now, um, 
you know, people who might be asking, okay, I want to grow in cultural awareness. I want to be more compassionate, more empathetic, you know, less patriarchal, less colonialist, more, more humble and competent regarding diversity. Um, and we kind of pinpointed, it's not specifically a set of skills, um, but, but kind of this, this attitude and mindset. Um, what would you say, Aaron, are some, some, some daily or frequent practices that a person could put themselves through to, to cultivate? Uh, this sort of awareness and these sorts of mindsets. Yeah, uh, off the top, definitely uh, go go to people of color. Go to go to people who are uh, people from other cultures, people from other backgrounds, and just ask them questions. Uh, and if you know if they're willing to meet for a cup of coffee, you know, or, or beer or whatever. But right. in the future, when when that becomes an option ask ask people those questions and and believe what they say right i think you know the, the part one and part two are are equally important like i i know a number of you know dominant culture people that they they have some of those relationships and uh it doesn't it doesn't change their behavior uh, if that makes sense like i i'm aware of some some people in, in my community so so these older white men that have longtime friends of color and uh, they meet and they talk and the white guy doesn't change. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, so meet, meet with people of color, uh, listen to them and, and believe what they say. And, and really what, what I'm suggesting is you give, you give power and influence over yourself to, to other people. Yeah. Uh, people who couldn't leverage that power over you, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. These meetings and encounters where, where you learn from someone would be would be really essential. Uh, and I'll throw it in there too. Like like you know if you're you know if you're you know you're a white guy taking out a person of color for coffee, planning to say, hey, can you can I ask you some questions? Then then you be the one that pays, or in some, <laughs> or in yes. some other way compensate the person for their their time and oh, their yeah. labor because you know. I mean, I mean, it's this fine balance, like we're kind of responsible to educate ourselves, but we also like want to actually like get, go to primary sources, but you know, that that's a complicated balance, but you know, be, be aware of that and don't just like assume people like have the, the time and energy to like fill your knowledge banks. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I would, and I would throw in, there's, there's books that, that you can read about, about this topic, you know, there's, and there's like, I, I've been reading a lot of, uh, like black and brown authors just from like political economic perspectives. So, uh, you know, Thomas Sankara, James Cohn, Cornell West, uh, and these, you know, these aren't like psychology or therapy books. They're just uh, about black liberation theology. Uh, it's, it's helped my, my clinical practice because it just opens my mind up to, to new language and new, new ideas, new possibilities for, how to relate to people. Uh, there's a W.B. Du Bois. Uh, he wrote the, the Black Soul, I think, or the Soul of Black People. Yeah. Anyway, there's a couple. There's books like that that just they're eye-opening. They're they're powerful. Uh, and again, it's it's all about like believe believe what people say. Uh, go go to people of color and and believe them. I think there's there's some fragility that I know comes up in me when somebody tells me something and the fragility comes out in shame, it comes out in defensiveness, it comes out in, well, this isn't my fault that the world is this way. And there's sort of these, these ideas that pop up in me and I'm like, wait a minute, why am I thinking this? Uh -huh. So the, at the end of it, you know, it ask, <laughs> make, make some friends of color. If that's an option for you, like you said, like take them out for, <clears throat> you know, compensate them. And uh, if that's not an option for you, read, 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 black authors you know yeah. li listen to podcasts by black and brown people i love that yeah i um i mean i've done a little bit of reading actually in all fairness that they were audiobooks no way I, I read one of them but uh, i picked up a couple i picked up a couple of yeah, i picked up a couple of fiction books by 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 women of color um one was you know nettie okwara for one was um uh, Oct uh octavia butler um author of kindred um oh yeah super good stories so like me as like an aspiring story writer i'm just like oh wow like these voices like their their narrative voice is just incredible um, yes but absolutely yeah um yeah I, I mean i hear you on the 
it's really essential to 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 trust people to to believe them to believe their stories and i and i totally relate to having that that recoil that 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 fragility in me you know especially when i hear like you know how angry they can be or how pain how full of pain their lives can be i mean they're not all like another misery but like you know when people talk about here's my story here's my pain here's my trouble like my recoil is like oh it can't be that bad can it be mm-hmm. you know and yeah it can and i need to you know again develop that resilience to to allow that oh yeah things can't actually be as bad as you say they are and mm-hmm. and it's people like me who have done that and that's that's hard to mm-hmm. hard to look at but mm-hmm. also really essential but yeah, I, I think I just want to emphasize this idea of um, growing in awareness. I mean, means growing in awareness, and you do that by exposure. You you get to know people, you get to know stories. There's um, biblical example, the idea of like you know love love your enemy because like once you love them, they're not your enemy anymore. You know that's kind of where it's got to come back to is like you know I see your humanity, I see the divinity within you, and and I and I love that part of you and all of the stuff that is hard about you, you know, we can work through and, and I'll make space for that. Uh, and by the way, please forgive me for all the ways that I've offended you. So. Right. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, ultimately it's about love, isn't it? I mean, we've talked a little bit about intent and, you know, so maybe, maybe the question by way of, going down this road of like because because for me early on I was like why why is this important like why why even talk about this um and I think that that can come up for clinicians who deal with a lot of you know dominant culture clients uh you know maybe private practice you've got all white clients who who can afford it and I think uh we uh we are better clinicians when we're able to see the humanity in people who are very different from us. And it's, I think it's easy to love people who are like me because, because I love myself, obviously. Uh-huh. And then, and if somebody's very different from me, uh, then, then I have to sort of negotiate like, okay, this, and, and this person's values or, or ideas or, or way of relating might be offensive to me. Uh, they, they, like you said, they might be an enemy. Um, and I think the, the way I understand that verse, love your enemy is, is we do have enemies. Uh, we do have people that because of their, their class location or social location, our, our interests are in opposition. Um, you know, we have this antagonistic relationship with each other. Uh, we're, we're, we don't all get along all the time. Uh, and so as clinicians, we, uh, when we are able to stretch the bounds of who we love, uh, we we become better clinicians, even with the clients that are more similar to us. Uh, so if you're if you're a clinician who's got all white caseload, uh, you'll you'll be better at loving them as you get to know yourself better. You become more aware of your own cultural location uh, or class location, or however you want to put it. Uh, when you you know when you discover these new ideas and discover these new ways of of loving people that are very different. Yeah there really is a huge aspect of this that is around uh, our own personal growth and personal transformation and the sense of like, you know, when you grow and you become healthy, then that is how you will most impact other people around you. Uh, yeah. Well so, said. Yeah. Um, earlier you'd mentioned books. I wonder, would you be willing to uh, produce a list of like your top 10 recommendations, you know, of books by uh, authors of color and I could maybe stick them in the liner notes. Oh yeah, I'd be happy to. Cool. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any other last thoughts for the the listener about any of this? <laughs> uh, last thoughts. I think. Um, if, shoot. We talked about a bunch of different things. I think uh, as a as a clinician, one of the things I've en- enjoyed most is just being stretched and challenged, and. Uh, that that's sort of a sort of a given is you know if you're doing if you're doing the work it's going to be hard uh i i think you know all clinicians social workers counselors got into this because we love people and then uh you know we we discover early on it's this is this is hard this is challenging work and so you know my my encouragement is you you would hear you're not alone and in the difficulty, uh, especially right now with, you know, with the coronavirus stuff, 
and with just the way of the world right now. Uh, so one, you're, you're not alone. And uh, two, I mean, it's like loving people is, is good and it's hard. Uh, so if you're, if you're doing the work and it's hard, uh, that, that just means you're doing the work. Um, so just, I, I, anyway, all this to say, I just, I hope whoever listens to this is, is encouraged and comes away with a couple ideas for, for how to learn and grow and love people better. Well said. Thank you. Um, if a listener wanted to get a hold of you, um, how would you consent to have them contact you? <laughs> uh, actually, Facebook's a good way to, to contact me. They can just Google or whatever Facebook search me. Um, and I'm, I'm open to putting my, my work email on, on here. So Awesome. Well, thanks, Aaron, for joining me here on the show. And thanks, listener, for tracking along with us. These are some, some good things, some heavy things, but definitely worth talking about. Please do rate and review our show and visit our Patreon page. Think about how you can support us and hope you, hope you stick around. Let's, uh, let's keep the conversation going. We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music